when the pilot got there, she didn't think it was suitable for landing. What they do is they fly down low and they kind of hit the strip with their wheels, and then they go back up, and then they fly around to look at their wheel tracks. So if their tracks dig in a lot, it might mean it's too muddy and they don't want to land because they don't want to get stuck. Ended up dropping us off eight kilometers south of the strip we had planned on being at. We had the option of being like, oh, this isn't, this isn't good, or okay, we'll get off and we'll see what we can do. There was four of us. There was a local Inuit from Resolute, who was our environmental monitor. Uh, and then there was two supervisors and myself. And I just met these, like the supervisors this summer. And I was like a new student, never been to the Arctic. So it's really bizarre because you do just get dropped off and the plane's just like, bye. And you're like, okay, let's set up camp. Sounds like being astronauts. Yeah, I just I just listened to The Martian on a podcast. And yeah, it's kind of similar. <laughs> Although there it's much more extreme because there's no atmosphere. <laughs> we could breathe normally. <laughs> So I worked at Schneider's for two summers. It was the second summer that I actually worked on the Wiener Line. I would have been turning 17. I was on the Juicy Jumbo Line. The Red Hot Line was only for the experienced professionals. The Wieners came out of the ceiling so fast that you had to be on your game to be able to work that line. So all the students got put on the Juicy Jumbo Line, uh, and there was a number of positions. One where you stood at the top of the line where the reeners came out of the ceiling and you just made sure they didn't get clogged from too much fat. And they came down the line and they got put in all these little slots. Two people's job was to stand and you had stacks of good quality wieners in front of you. And the wieners coming down the line in these slots, if there was broken ones or ones still with the casing on them, you'd have to flick them off as fast as you can and replace them with a the good wiener. So you were constantly just flicking and replacing and flicking and replacing. And you'd go to bed at night just with wieners going by in your eyes. <laughs> I'd have to mentally shut down the machine before I could go to sleep. <laughs> what happened to the broken wieners? I honestly don't know. I think the wieners just got like remixed into new hot dogs. Remixed. Yes, I think they just got like reground up and became new hot dogs. The circle of life. The circle of hot dog life. I was the type of person I came to university not knowing what I wanted to do. Growing up, I never knew what I wanted to do. At the end of university, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. I took six years, so I graduated with 12 extra classes. Uh, and I took classes like mythology, sociology, criminology, psychology. I wanted to test everything out to make sure that I found out what I liked. I fell in love with earth science, with all the rocks and minerals. I loved being able to look at a rock and being able to identify it. And then once you can identify it, you can go into all the details about what makes that rock that rock or that mineral that mineral. I work on landslides that occur in permafrost. Permafrost is ground that remains frozen for two or more years. Permafrost is anything. It can be rock, it's gravels, it's sand, so any type of material that is frozen. Whenever we can, we try to hire someone from the community to come in to be an environmental monitor. They're there to ensure that we're adhering to the wildlife guidelines so we're not bugging the wildlife. Or if the wildlife is bugging us, that he helps us take care of that. You feel a lot more comfortable when you have someone there that gets comfortable shooting a polar bear. A lot of people end up coming to the field with their firearms licenses, but have never shot a gun. 
you're meeting all the requirements of being there. You have your gun license, but I don't know if I'd want someone having a gun that's never shot a gun. When we took the gun, uh, the gun course, we actually went to the gun range and did shoot a rifle and a shotgun. So everyone was at least comfortable with shooting a bit. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't the guy that like taught you the class like have a hook for hand or something weird? <laughs> no. The man that taught me did not have a hook for a hand. <laughs> he had both hands. <laughs> there are no trees where I was working. I was a thousand kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. Not really any even shrubby vegetation. So there, there are grasses. There's mosses. There are some flowering plants. So it's not lifeless. There is vegetation in areas. And that's what the lemmings and the muskox and the caribou eat seen a lot of muskox on Melville Island and up on Ellesmere. And typically you see them in like herds of 15, 12 to 15. And there's little baby muskox in the summer and they're so little. Their hooves are so tiny. I've woken up in the middle of the night to go to the washroom and I've come into my tent and there's just a herd of muskox grazing literally 50 meters from my tent. They'll get protective if they have young ones. If you're just minding your business and you take a good berth around them when you're walking, they'll, they'll be fine. They just kind of stand there and eat the grass. Muskox are there all year round, so in the winter it gets very cold. So they have this undercoat called kivet, and it is extremely warm, so it's a highly prized wool. And so people will actually collect kivet, or when they do kill a muskox, they'll make sure that they collect the kivet and clean it, and then they'll cart it into yarn. By sunset, Syntagma Square outside Parliament. This was evening, the U.S. officials have charged NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. Well, you're in the field, you're completely cut off from any outside information. Pilots come through with new groups of people, so you can get bits of information from them about what's going on in the world. We drink the water when we're there. We don't bring water in with us. And we don't treat our water typically because the water's pretty clean. I've never treated water up there, actually. But the water we were drinking at this camp we had landed at tasted almost like there was a lemon in the water. And we realized that the water where it was coming from, it was actually draining out of this area where there was a type of rock that actually had these minerals and uh, metals in the rock that were making the water acidic. And we realized that it wouldn't actually be safe to drink this water for the extent that we were there for. So we ended up having to walk to the lake every couple of days to get water. And so because we don't have running water, it means that there's not a lot of extra water for bathing. So you don't commonly wash your hair for the entire time you're there. So the one site I was at, I was there for five weeks, and I didn't wash my hair once in those five weeks. It's the first 10 days where your head gets a little itchy, but after that, you're smooth sailing. We take lake water samples to look at the chemistry in the lake water. So one of the aspects that come with doing, with doing sampling on the lakes is when you get there and there's ice cover, you need to drill through the lake ice. So the lake ice in these areas can be up to eight feet thick. If you wanted to put a fence in, you need to dig a hole. It's the same type of equipment. So we were drilling through the hole, and we kept putting extensions on because each extension is probably only two feet. So we had about four extension rods on. We had just broken through the bottom of the lake ice, 
And when you break through the ice, it's really important to get it out because now there's water in the hole and the water is much warmer than the ice. So it immediately starts to freeze in. And one of the things you're never supposed to do is put your hand anywhere near where the extension rods join together. So as we were pulling this out of the hole, my glove got too close to the one of the clips and it pulled my glove in. So I wrapped the thumb of my glove around the pole. I honestly don't remember how many times it got wrapped around, but I screamed. My supervisor just like looked at me and he turned it off and we got it out of the hole and I unwrapped my glove because my glove was wrapped around the hole and I it kind of felt like burning. Pulled off my glove and my thumb was not completely attached. There wasn't a lot of bleeding, shockingly, and I was told after the fact that there wasn't a lot of bleeding because my thumb, before it ripped, it was being stretched and twisted. So because it was stretched so far, the veins, when they finally ripped, they sucked back in so quickly that they self-cauterized. So I'm laying on this, and then he figured out that they were going to send a plane, but the weather wasn't great, but they were going to try to send a plane, see what they could do. Maybe the weather would change. So they got me on a comatic. So a Comatic is a sled that you drag behind the snowmobile. They got me on the Comatic and they took me back to the Weather Haven. And the Weather Haven is a large heated tent where we cook and we spend our time. Then it was a waiting game. So I remember eating macaroni and I <laughs> made my, the other girl that's with me read me Harry Potter. The Goblet of Fire, which is my favorite book. <laughs> so she was reading Harry Potter and, and I was pretty stressed out because I was worried that I wasn't going to get out of the field. And that if I didn't get out of the field, was I going to lose my thumb? So I ended up getting picked up at the camp uh, seven hours after the incident happened. I got to Resolute. There's a uh, nursing station in Resolute, and the nurses are very capable. One of the nurses had been there for, I think, 20 years in Resolute being a nurse. She was actually from Ireland, but was there, and she loved it. And once they did the x-ray, they contacted a doctor in a Calowit, and the doctor was like, oh, it's just dislocated. I didn't know you could fully dislocate and rip, partially rip off a thumb, but I did that. What the doctor told her to do was actually to put it back on top, to relocate the tip of my thumb on. They, they froze the tip of my thumb, but because it was attached by such a little amount of skin, it didn't fully freeze. So I could still feel that. They decided they're going to give me laughing gas, which I was quite happy with. I didn't want to feel anything. And there was two nurses, but both of them needed to be on my thumb. So I was in charge of holding my own mask on my face. <laughs> So I held on the laughing gas and it took them a number of tries, like three or four tries to get it on. I was nervous that they were going to give up because they couldn't do it. And on the last try, they finally got it on. And while they were really reefing on it, I sucked in so much laughing gas that the mask suctioned onto my face. So they had to peel the mask off my face after my thumb got on. And I remember them holding up my thumb and being like, look at it. And my answer was, it's a real thumb. <laughs> It's a real thumb. 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 <laughs> it's a real thumb. <laughs> and I tried to bend it, and they were all like, no, 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 no. It might pop back off, so don't bend it. <laughs> I realized how unprepared we actually are for something like that to happen. So everyone has basic first aid, but in basic first aid, when something goes wrong, what you're supposed to do is call 911. But there is no 911 for us, and even though Polar Shelf is amazing, it can be seven hours to days to get help. So after that, actually, my supervisor decided that people needed more intensive training. So we did advanced wilderness first aid. 
The big thing you need to do in the wilderness is to assess how serious this is. So can this situation wait for a day till the plane can get safely in? Or does this person need to go now? Is it life-threatening? And that's the kind of decision that's really hard to make if you don't have that background. This past May, I went and did my wilderness first responder. So now I have 80 hours of advanced wilderness training. I've been to the Arctic now six summers. But as of right now, I love going to the north. It's a really unique place to be. The first place I went to, there was maybe a handful of people, if any, that had ever been there. You feel kind of special that you get to go there. So it's almost like you are researching things for the first time. There's a lot of questions that aren't answered with respect to uh, these frozen regions, uh, specifically the permafrost, and you're trying to answer them. So it's like you are on this kind of frontier of research. This was the first episode of Wintered, a podcast about the cold. This episode's guest was Ashley Rudy, PhD candidate and specialist in permafrost terrain hazard analysis. This episode was recorded, edited, and mixed by me, Ellie Gordon Marshall. Special thanks to Anna Weinbean. There will be two more episodes of Wintered for this season. Look for them in mid-January and February.